Lord Jesus, as we've sung um, and in a sense already prayed, so we now just want to pray again that you would speak to us, um, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and soft hearts, and that we would be changed, that we would be blessed by what you are saying to us this morning, for your glory. Amen. Joy that no one can take away, and peace that doesn't evaporate when trouble comes. So those are two kind of massive things that Jesus promises to his disciples in this passage. I wonder if they sound attractive to you. Joy that no one can take away and peace that doesn't evaporate when trouble comes. And I'm not talking about the the, the ordinary kind of joy that we normally experience in this world. For example, the summer evening around a barbecue with our best friends where all sorts of things bring enjoyment the, the surroundings, the warmth, the food, the drink, the colours of the sun setting, the stars as they begin to twinkle in the sky, and best of all, the, the company, that sense of security and freedom of, of, of being with people who really know us and we know them, and so that the banter and the laughter and the shared memories come flowing out. Those moments are moments of joy. And they are precious. They're a beautiful part of our existence. But they don't last. The memories last, but the memories are not joy in themselves. The memories are just like impressions, like ripples on the sand on the seashore left by the waves after the tide has receded. They're just impressions. They are not the joy itself. The joy has passed. And it's the same with all worldly joy. It comes and it goes. It is fleeting. The best that we can do is enjoy it as much as possible in the moment without trying to analyze it and without trying to think too much about the fact it's going to end soon. If we try to keep hold of it, it is like grasping at the wind. Worldly joy comes and goes, but Jesus promises joy that no one can take away. And what about peace at the end of our passage? Again, I'm not talking about peace as the absence of trouble, the kind of chilling on the deck of a yacht in calm seas and sunshine peace. I'm talking about an inner peace, a firm conviction that It's going to be okay, you are in safe hands, when you're in the middle of the storm and the waves are crashing over the side of the boat and the wind is tugging so hard on the sails that you think they're going to rip. Surely that is a deeper, more profound kind of peace. Anyone can feel peace when life's easy, but how many people do you know that have a deep and lasting peace that is still visible when everything is going wrong for them. Hopefully you might know one or two people in this room, but I'd suggest it's not something we see very often. Lasting joy and peace in the middle of trouble. 
Do they sound attractive? These are the things that Jesus promises to his disciples. And so I want to spend the rest of the sermon kind of digging into how, how do we find that joy and peace? And then what, how do they work on a daily basis? How, what do they look like? And I'm going to look, um, I'm going to focus particularly on joy, partly because Jesus talks about that more, um, and partly because the peace kind of flows out of it. So we'll just touch on peace at the end. So firstly, how do we find lasting joy? Verse 16, or sorry, um, kind of in, in these first few verses, we see that it is through a moment of intense pain. Lasting joy is found through a moment of intense pain. If you look at verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, In a little while you will see me no more, and then, after a little while, you will see me. And we know that's important because it's repeated twice more, word for word, in verses 17 to 19. Jesus wants us to understand John, the writer, wants us to understand that Jesus' disappearance and his reappearance are highly significant. But his disappearance is also a moment of intense pain. Verse 20, he says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Why grief? Well, because Jesus is about to be crucified. The disciples are going to grieve because they are so far from understanding the Old Testament promises about the Messiah. And they are so far from understanding even Jesus' own words about being exalted in his death that they would only be able to see his crucifixion as a bitter blow to their hopes. They would weep and mourn because their hopes were dashed. What were those hopes? We assume that they were hopes that Jesus was going to judge and destroy Israel's enemies there and then, like driving out the occupying Romans, that he was going to restore glory and honor to Israel there and then and make them the chief among the nations, that he was going to bring a reign of peace on the earth, where people from every nation would fear him and come up to Jerusalem to worship. His disciples wanted glory now and heaven on earth now. And no doubt they didn't want to be separated from the teacher and friend that they had left everything for and spent the last three years with and whom they had come to love so much. But they needed to understand that such glory, such intimacy with God, because Jesus is God, cannot last until the wretched disease of sin has been dealt with. The sin that infects every human heart, even Israelites like Peter, James, and John. Sin that is like a terminal cancer that overshadows all joy and undermines all peace with the inescapable reality of death just around the corner. 
The problem of sin should have been obvious to them from Israel's history. Israel had failed in its calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, bringing the blessings of God's presence to the world. Instead of being light in the darkness, they had just been more darkness most of the time. But the disciples clearly didn't see this. And yet, the prophet Isaiah says, and this is relevant for our passage, Chapter 26, verses 17 to 18. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. And Israel had not brought salvation to the earth because their sin stood in the way. But now Jesus was about to taste the death that they deserved to remove the judgment of their sin and to break its power over their hearts. And as a result, the disciples were, so to speak, they were going to enter into the pain of childbirth for a second time, as Jesus describes in verse 21. And he's riffing off the imagery from Isaiah here. The disciples were about to see the Messiah crucified in shame and anguish. And yet it would give way to joy. Why? As Isaiah goes on to say in 26 verse 19, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. And just as he prophesied, after only a little while, Jesus would rise from the tomb, the firstborn from the dead, and his disciples would see him. And John tells us that when they saw him in 20 verse 20, they were overjoyed. Lasting joy had arrived through that intense moment of pain in the death of Jesus, giving way to his resurrection. And it couldn't be any other way. Lasting joy is only found in knowing God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because he is the eternal one. He is the only one who is never going to change or fail or get old and boring. He is the only one who will always have greater depths of goodness and love for us to discover. So lasting joy can only be found in knowing him. And for us, in a similar way to the disciples, we cannot have that lasting intimacy and therefore joy with God until our false hopes have been smashed down and the barrier of sin has been torn down. We can only enter into lasting joy when we abandon the false hopes and the cherished ambitions of finding lasting joy in a fallen world. A world where sin and death bring every good thing to an end. 
I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy the moments of pleasure and intimacy and fun and adventure and excitement that God has built into this world. As long as we enjoy them in the way God intends. But I am saying that these things are only shadows. They are only signposts which are meant to point us back to the greater goodness of the one who made them. And we can only enter into lasting joy when those false hopes in purely worldly things are smashed. And sadly, too many people hold on in desperation throughout their lives that yet another, through, through yet another failed romance, through yet another morning with a terrible hangover and deep regrets, through yet another disappointing fresh start or career change where the grass wasn't greener on the other side. And through many things like that, all without realizing that it's in vain. And if that's you, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, can I plead with you to let go of those vain hopes? To let go before you reach old age in bitterness and resentment and disappointment. Or worse, before you die. None of us knows what, when that day will be. Tomorrow may be too late. We can only have lasting joy when we give up on finding it in this fallen world. And we can only have lasting joy when we are willing to confess the sin that stands between us and God. Sin that is like an avalanche across the road, blocking our way. When we let go of the pride that says, I am too good for God, I don't need his forgiveness, which was me about 16, 17 years ago. Or the pride that says, I'm too bad for God. I know he couldn't possibly forgive someone like me. But who are you and who am I to decide who God can and can't forgive? We will only find lasting joy when we are willing to say, Jesus, I am a sinner. My hope is only in you. I have nowhere else left to go. Help me. Help me. And it hurts to do this, doesn't it? It feels like an intense loss. It is like putting part of ourselves to death to say those things, to squash our pride, to let go of those cherished hopes. But when we push through that moment of pain, when we discover the risen Jesus coming with open arms to welcome us as a brother or sister, then true joy begins, and it never, ever ends. And if you are a Christian, there is a sense in which we have passed through that moment of pain once and for all when we trusted Jesus for the first time. And we can give thanks that there'll never be a moment quite like that again. But his work in us is not complete, as you and I well know. We still wrestle with hearts that go astray and want to find joy in the things around us, more than in God. 
And there is a steady stream of hidden sin that Jesus gently, slowly keeps bringing to light so that we can be set free from it. And so the moment of pain has to be repeated in a small way again and again, letting go afresh, asking forgiveness afresh to enter into renewed joy and deeper joy. And I simply want to say, don't resent those moments. Even if they're coming every day at the moment, don't resent them. Don't shrink from the pain. Jesus isn't being cruel. Instead, like a a toddler reaching for the plug socket who needs to have their fingers gently prized away, Jesus is directing us back to where true and lasting joy is found. We find lasting joy through a moment of intense pain. But once we have it, what does it look like? How does it work? And I'm going to move more briefly through the rest of the passage now. Firstly, the the things I want us to see, that the joy is from seeing the risen Jesus. Did you notice that emphasis in verses 16 to 19 when Jesus says, and then after a little while you will see me. And again in verse 22, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Lasting joy comes from seeing the risen Jesus. Why? Well, because it brings the assurance, the certainty that he has overcome the world. Just as he says at the end of verse 33, the world and the devil have hated him. They've thrown their worst at him. They've tried to silence him and snuff out the light. But they couldn't do it. He has risen, showing that the world and the devil and even death have no power over him. Rather, he has all power over them. So the disciples can hope that God's kingdom will triumph over the world and that they really will enjoy eternal life with him. Their hope is secure because they have seen the risen Jesus. That is the source of their joy. And you might be thinking, well, it's all right for them, but what about us? We haven't seen him. He's up in heaven. We weren't there at the empty tomb. How does this help us? Well, I think Jesus is, um, I think he's sympathetic to that uh, complaint. We might wonder if our joy is going to be weaker, diluted, like watered-down squash compared to freshly squeezed orange juice, because we've not seen him. And yet Jesus says, after the resurrection to Thomas, because um, when Thomas has seen him and believed, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When he says that, when we said, he says that we will be blessed, I don't think we are going to have diluted joy. When we believe without physical sight, actually we can have comparable joy. And I think if you'll come with me back to chapter 14, that that is because Jesus says in verses 18 to 19, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Physical sight is not everything. There is a sense in which Jesus is present with us by his spirit, and the same spirit enables us to see him clearly, particularly as we read the words that the same spirit has given through the disciples in the Bible, in Scripture. They have testified that Jesus is risen, and the Spirit testifies to our hearts that he is risen. And we can have confidence, even when the world hates us, as Jesus said it would. We can know that our hope is secure, and we can have joy. What if you lack that joy? Well, we probably have to ask ourselves first, where are we seeking joy? It may well be that we're not seeking it fully in Jesus. But if we deliberately choose to drag our minds, kicking and screaming, back to the fact of his resurrection, and if we deliberately choose to give thanks for his victory and the eternal life it promises, and keep choosing to do that each day. And if we ask the Holy Spirit to give a deeper assurance that he is risen, that he is victorious, he will do it. He will do it. And no one will be able to take that joy away. It is something both that we do have to wrestle to keep hold of, and it is also something that his Spirit will give to us. It's not one or the other, it's both. And so we can wrestle and we can pray and we will have that joy. Secondly, this joy, how does it work? Well, it is the joy of knowing a father who loves us. Joy began with seeing the risen Jesus it is made complete by a new relationship with God the Father. And there are several reasons in verses 23 to verse 27 why his resurrection brings a new relationship with the Father. Firstly, in verse 25, Jesus will tell them plainly about the Father, so they will know him like never before. Now, actually, Jesus has already told them and shown them an awful lot about the Father, but they have, they've been too blind to see it. But after his resurrection, with the, the grief of loss and the fog of confusion blown away, with a new ability to comprehend given by the Holy Spirit, they will know the Father like never before. And so do we, based on their testimony. We know the Father like never before, especially as we look at Jesus. But that's not all. Verse 27 gives one of the, the clearest assurances that the Father himself loves those who believe in Jesus. It's not like Jesus has to twist the Father's arm. It's not like a son bringing home his fiancée for the first time only for his dad to turn his nose up and say, couldn't you have done better? No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That's what Jesus says. Now we find it easy to love people who love the same things as us, don't we? 
whether it's someone who loves the same football team or likes the same kind of films, shares our love as sort of the city or the countryside or clubbing or whatever it is, how much more so with God the Father? He loves his son with an unfathomable, overwhelming, overflowing, eternal love. So how much is he going to love us when we love his son? He loves us, and especially because his son has now taken away every stain of sin. There is nothing to come between us and the Father. And that should be a cause for joy and celebration. Do you believe that the Father loves you? You should do, because Jesus couldn't be clearer. But just in case we were in any doubt, we are given one more assurance. The Father will answer our prayers to prove it. So this is the third thing. Joy comes from receiving what the Father gives. Sorry, receiving from a Father who gives, who loves to give, who longs to give. We can pray to the Father directly now because he loves us. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus, we, we, right back at the beginning of John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, that is Jesus, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we believe in Jesus, we are given new birth into God's family. We become his children. And children do not need to stand at the door of the house and send a message into the big man via a servant when they want something. No, they get to run right into daddy's room and into his arms. And no one is allowed to stop them. The Father is only too pleased to hear our prayers. Do you see that in verse 23? It says, very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. He's not like a genie in a lamp who's sort of obligated to grant you three wishes when you rub the lamp, but secretly wishes that you'd just set him free so he can go and mind his own business and be left in peace. Father's not like that. Verse 24 says, ask and you will receive. He wants us to petition him day and night and give him no rest. Now, isn't that the world's biggest encouragement to pray? But perhaps it sounds too good and you're thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one. Not in the sense that you might be thinking, at least, that the Father wants something for himself in return. He doesn't need anything for himself from us. But there is a condition. The condition is that we pray in Jesus' name. And that doesn't mean that we just say in Jesus' name at the end of each prayer like some kind of magical incantation. Though it's not, it's not necessarily wrong to say in Jesus' name, and I, I habitually do it. But we are to pray in light of Jesus' name and all that his name represents, who he is. It's a bit like how a brand name like Apple or Nike carries associations with it of a particular style, functionality, set of values. To pray in Jesus' name is to let 
Our prayers be shaped by his character, his teaching and his priorities as they are laid down in scripture. If I can put it this way, it's to pray Jesus-shaped prayers. Those are the kind of prayers the father loves to answer because he wants his son to be glorified, because he loves his son. So we're encouraged to pray, but we're also encouraged to get to know Jesus better so that he can shape our prayers. That's something that we can ask for God's help with too, because it is the Father through the Spirit who opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. And as our prayers become more Jesus-shaped, we will see more of them answered. Thinking about his teaching in, in the last few chapters, we're going to be in safe territory if we're praying for help to love one another, to love one another self-sacrificially as he has loved us. You may remember that from John 13. Perhaps especially when we ask for help to love those that we find particularly difficult. That is a prayer that the Father is only too happy to answer. What about help to obey Jesus' teaching? That's come up again and again in chapter 15. Especially in the areas we struggle most with. Ask his help. He's not going to withhold it. And what about help to testify about Jesus with the Spirit, as he commanded us at the end of chapter 15. Who doesn't struggle with that? The Father is willing to help. Obviously, the rest of the Bible gives us a much fuller picture of what we can pray that is sort of in line with Jesus' character. But there are a few things for you. And one other just practical suggestion I want to bring it that I picked up on from... Um, St. Augustine, of all people, sort of great theologian of the early church who just radiated love for Jesus. And I found this really helpful. He says, to pray specific prayers. It's not wrong to pray something like the Lord's Prayer through word for word, not to embellish on it. But what if we do stop at each line and make it specific? What if we, for example, say, help me, Father, to hallow your name and treat it as precious in the way that I speak to my classmates or my colleagues today or my children or my spouse? What if we pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done in my heart, in the way I respond to that person who hurt me? It's not that the Father won't answer non-specific prayers. But we will be much more likely to see the answers when they relate to specific personal situations where the results are going to be obvious to us. So pray Jesus-shaped prayers. Pray specific prayers. And one more practical suggestion. If you struggle to pray on your own, but you are encouraged to pray more, try and pray with other people. I, I, I think I've realized increasingly in this last year that actually for some people it's almost the most unnatural thing in the world to go and pray quietly by themselves in their bedroom. But getting together with a couple of Christian friends or a couple of Christian colleagues on your lunch break or a couple of Christian classmates from your year 
that might just be the thing you need. We have First Tuesday, we have Thursday morning prayer meetings as well, but if you can't make those times, find a couple of Christian friends or colleagues you can pray with and let that be a help to you. There's no shame in that. What is the result of all of this? We, we, we have joy from seeing the risen Jesus. That joy grows from the love of the Father as he answers our prayers. It makes our joy complete. Well, finally, that joy leads to peace. At the end of verse 33, we can have peace even in the midst of trouble, even in the middle of a world that hates us. And we can take heart and we can have courage and we can persevere because we have a deep assurance that Jesus is risen. And if he has overcome the world and if they could not stop him, if death could not hold him, then it will not stop us either. And it will not keep us from experiencing eternal life with him. He has overcome the world, and that is how we will overcome the world. And so we can have peace. Let's pray for that now. Lord Jesus, some of us have, so to speak, never seen you risen. And we've never crossed through that moment of pain, of letting go of worldly hopes, of, of confessing our sins, of putting to death our pride. Some of us don't know that joy of meeting you. And we pray for anyone Anyone here, anyone listening this morning that doesn't know that? Lord, please would you help them? Please would you help them to see the beauty and the glory of who you are, risen, reigning, having overcome the world. And we pray that all the other things that hold them back would pale in comparison. And Lord, we pray for that for all of us who are Christians who are struggling struggling to experience joy, struggling to hold on to joy. Lord, forgive us where we are looking for it in the wrong places still. Help us, please, not to shrink from that, those sort of little moments of pain where again and again we have to turn back and repent. Please would you lead us deeper into your joy. Please help us to hold on to the knowledge that you are risen. Lord, would you impress upon our hearts more and more deeply by your spirit the truth of, of the scriptures that you really are risen. And would we see that played out in our daily lives? Father, as you answer our prayers, help us to pray Jesus-shaped prayers that you would answer and that our joy will be complete. We ask it for the glory of your name. Amen.